Hi, everyone. Um, welcome to From Regulation to Responsibility, Reframing Environmental Stewardship Towards Interconnection, where we'll be taking an exciting dive into the new frontier of American environmentalism. We will be discussing advocacy strategies for communities all over, around the country using the courts and the power of the people. Joining us are Elizabeth Dunn, the Director of legal, for Legal Advocacy at the Earth Law Center, Karen Coulter, a co-founder of the Blue Mountains Biodiversity Project, Margie Miller, a rights of nature advocate for in Toledo, Ohio, who championed the Lake Erie Bill of Rights, and Stu Wolf. My name is Renata Happel, my pronouns are she, her, and I currently live on Lenape land in New York City. I am a policy intern at the Earth Law Center and super excited to be here today. I wanted to open with a little passage by Octavia Butler, um, where she says, partnership is giving, taking, learning, teaching, offering the greatest possible benefit while doing the least possible harm. Partnership is mutualistic symbiosis. Partnership is life. Any entity, any process that cannot or should not be resisted or avoided must somehow be partnered. Partner one another, partner diverse communities, partner life, partner any world that is at your home. Only in partnership can we thrive, grow, change. Only in partnership can we live. And um, with that, I want to address that your questions in the chat will be addressed at the end of the presentation um, around 2 p.m. Um, and could my speakers please introduce themselves um, and their work more in depth, maybe starting with uh, Ellie. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be here. Um, good to see you all. Um, and I'm looking forward to this conversation. Um, my name is Elizabeth Dunn or Ellie. I'm the Director of Legal Advocacy at the Earth Law Center. I use she, her pronouns and I'm in Port Angeles, Washington on Lower Elwha Column Territory. So that's over in the Olympic Peninsula. Um, I, um, let's see, I just wanted to give, I guess a little brief introduction to my background. Um, I've been in law for about 20 years. I've done kind of a, a whole variety of things, um, working initially in public interest law, um, public housing conditions, access to uh, healthcare. Um, I've also done traditional environmental law, sort of your environmental regulatory law. Um, and I've been a law clerk for a couple of different federal judges. Um, and then um, started my own practice back in 2010. Um, and through that work with a, um, a number of different nonprofits. And as I mentioned, I'm, I'm currently proud to be serving as the Director of Legal Advocacy at the Earth Law Center. It was about 10 years ago, or actually about 12 years ago now that I became interested in um, and engaged with what's known as, sort of in, as the rights of nature movement um, around the time of the passage of the Universal Declaration of the Rights of Mother Earth. Um, and with that, looking at what this conference is about is systems change, looking at interconnection of all these issues, um, realizing that we are not on a sustainable trajectory and being dissatisfied with the current laws that we have, the current constitutional provisions that we have, um, having tried to use those for a number of years to achieve the results we wanted um, in court and finding them fairly inadequate to do so in most circumstances. Um, so that is what brought me brought me to this work. And at the Earth Law Center, um, we do focus a, a lot on rights of nature, but also the rights of future generations, indigenous sovereignty, um, and support kind of encompassed within the term Earth Law. We 
really consider kind of this broader movement, everything that is moving us to a place where we are able to live and exist and thrive in a more sustainable and balanced way um, with the natural world. Um, so I will stop there with that and hand it over to Marky. Thank you. Um, I'm happy to be here. My name is Marky Miller. I live in Toledo, Ohio. I am a rights of nature advocate. Uh, currently, I carry out that role in a volunteer capacity, uh, but I was an active member of the group that helped pass the Lake Erie Bill of Rights, which recognized the right of Lake Erie to exist and flourish and naturally evolve. So I do wanna just clarify again that I am an advocate, not an expert. And so my understanding of this work and this movement is always growing. I'm happy to share my story in hopes that other people can take from it, but also I'm still learning and, and building onto that. Um, so excited to see what details come out in our discussion. Not going to be doing a formal presentation or telling every detail of that story. So um, I think a lot of the will come out as we talk. And if there's anything that um, isn't clarified, uh, just you know, ask a question or I'll also try to make myself available after this discussion is over. So I'll make sure my contact info is available. Um, I don't know if there are any other panelists here. I don't see them to hand it over. So I guess I'll hand it back to Renata. Thank you. All right, so for our first question, what is your ultimate goal? Um, if you had to elevate your elevator pitch your work, how would you? Um, I can start. <laughs> so I think um, our ultimate goal was to pass a rights of nature law, which we did, and to contribute to a growing global conversation. And you know, I feel like we we met that goal as well. So we know now that um, our law has since been overturned in federal court. And I think what's important is knowing that that doesn't diminish the value of what we did. We were told no by just about every political body that you could think of and had countless corporate attempts to keep us off the ballot. Um, but we still got there. And when we handed that decision over to the people, they overwhelmingly passed it. So you know, we're still contending with a lot of those barriers, but um, I think ultimately we met a lot of the goals that we set. If I had to give an elevator pitch, um, not necessarily specific to LIBOR, but just to this type of strategy would probably be, you know, identify the problem and determine your solution absent the rules and then strategize to change the rules. Um, really quickly, could we define rights of nature for those who don't know and why it's important to have rights of nature laws? Yeah, Elizabeth, do you want to, I know that's probably more your intro. <laughs> sure, um, I'm sure you could do it as well. And that's great, great point, Renata, to, to set the stage. So rights of nature, generally speaking, right, recognizes the rights of nature to exist, thrive, evolve, and be restored. And uh, those are among the rights that can be recognized. And um, like when I refer to the rights of nature movement, and we kind of look at sort of some of these, uh, you know, events that have occurred that have essentially captured the concept of living in right relationship with nature and respecting and having a responsibility and the stewardship ethic towards nature in Western law is sort of looking at it from the rights of nature movement, recognizing that 
since time immemorial, there are people that have indigenous peoples who have lived and had this ethic and stewardship relationship with nature um, that has not in, not been recognized in our Western legal system. And so there's a lot of conversations right now actually around, you know, what does rights mean? And well, <laughs> there's a lot of conversations right now about what rights mean and what rights we have and what rights we don't have. And we can see how those rights can exist and be taken away and um, sort of a broader conversation about rights and where we're at in the world today with that. But um, I guess the, to, I think it's important to understand that um, the rights of nature um, is a, a reflection, it's a useful tool to basically interface with our Western legal system and amplify the voice of nature in that system because um, we do have a rights-based system um, and along with rights come responsibilities. So I always like to emphasize the responsibilities that we have as humans to nature and that stewardship responsibility because it is a symbiotic relationship. So sometimes when we get focused on rights, it can create this sort of um, competitive um, con you know, construct of like rights. I have these rights, the, the nature has these rights, so I have less rights or, but I like to really try to express it in that more holistic way. Um, but in the, in the simplest form, it gives nature standing or a voice in court to be able to be heard in, um, in our legal system, in forums, in other forums as well. Um, and then from a social cultural perspective, it elevates our respect because we treat things that have rights. We reckon that's tied to our what we value and what we respect. So it shows how much we value and respect nature when we recognize nature as having rights. Um, that's kind of my brief synopsis. The Earth Law Center does have a timeline, doesn't include every event in Rights of Nature, um, welcomes people to submit. But on our website, we have a timeline that sort of has the evolution of um, what's been happening in the Rights of Nature movement because it's grown exponentially at that time in 2010. Um, and we're seeing a lot of um, amazing, inspiring developments. And I look to, um, we have a Latin American team and I look to the work that's happening in Chile, for example, just um, in their new constitution, there's a proposal to include rights of nature um, and recognizes interconnection between humans and nature. So look to the, I look to that for inspiration um, today. <laughs> I will stop there. Sorry, that was kind of a long explanation. I have an entire presentation on rights of nature, so. <laughs> That was perfect. Um, so going back to the question, what, what is your ultimate goal and um, how would you pitch your work? Yeah, so I'll say that in, in my, you know, I kind of answer that with a, a broader lens because at the Earth Law Center, what we do and kind of what I've done throughout my career is to assist, to assist folks like, like Marky and um, you know, groups and individuals, organizations who are wanting to do this work. Um, and so, you know, my goal is to see that we have developed a relationship and are living in right relationship with the natural world that's responsible, respectful, um, and sustainable. Um, so that would be my, that's, you know, sort of my vision there. And I have specific projects I can speak to as well, but I think I'll, I will put that aside for now. Okay, awesome. So my second question is a three-parter, and you can answer whatever part um, that most speaks to you, but um, how is your perspective around nature radicalized? What is your internal driving force for land and water protection? 
And how would you reconstruct the, the framing around land and water protection work, especially where you're from? And we can start with Marky if you'd like. Yeah, that's fine. Uh, I never want to interrupt, so feel free to like call on us. <laughs> um, yeah, and I, I think for people who maybe it's their first time hearing about rights of nature, it, it might seem really radical. And certainly the first time I was introduced to it, um, you know, it was like, oh, it's, it's just so different and it's so crazy and I've got no other options, so why not? And so I think maybe at the beginning it, it feels that way. Um, but it, I don't know, I, I think you go through this evolution <laughs> with it and it, it's become normalized to me, right? This concept that you're talking about an ecosystem as a life supporting system and you're surrounded by people who tell you no based on a piece of paper, a corporation having rights. And that just you you can't understand like how do you accept that and not the other um so for me it's I think the corporate rights is just seems far more radical <laughs> to me now and this idea of of an ecosystem being treated as a, a living entity is um something that's just become more more normal in my life um as far as you know the internal driving force for me um, obviously the water crisis that Toledo had in 2014, right? So you wake up and our water is untouchable, undrinkable, don't bathe with it, don't boil it. Um, that was a really scary moment of realizing how vulnerable we are and realizing like this, this happened just so suddenly, um, and uncovering it to find that it was a growing problem. We just weren't talking about it. And I think that really, um, that really got to me that why, why do we have all this data on it, but it's not a, a conversation that's going on, that we don't care about fixing the problem until it affects us personally. We have to wait for that crisis to happen rather than caring about what's going on for that ecosystem, like what's going on with Lake Erie. And uh, I grew up in this area. I would spend my summers driving hours up north just to enjoy the lake and sort of accepted that Lake Erie is, is so close, but we don't go to that lake. It's dirty, it's gross, you know, it's, it's polluted, it's dead. And I spent a good portion of my life accepting that as, as fact. And so I feel like I owe it to this area. You know, this is the place that I call home. It's the place that I wanna raise a family and continue to contribute and, and be part of. Um, I have an obligation to take care of it and to kind of circle back to what Elizabeth was talking about. It's when we get into that value of, of stewardship over ownership and um, realize that we do have an obligation to take care of the places that we live. Um, I'm trying to think, what was your, what was your third question? I don't remember which one that was. How would you reconstruct uh, the framing around land and water protection work, especially where you're from? Ah, okay. Um, you know, I think a big thing that's missing is having more ideas rooted in this like precautionary principle and, and not doing harm. Um, a lot of our environmental laws in particular are centered around the cleanup and 
who to blame and not taking a lot of corrective action in saying we, we want to prevent the harm to begin with. Um, so I think that we have a lot of legal activity that, you know, requires there to be um, an actual harm first or activities that require some kind of sacrifice or ecosystem loss. And we don't regard that yet as like, if your activity isn't safe, if it's not viable, if it is going to produce some level of harm, then why are we even considering it? And that's missing from the conversation. Amazing. Ellie, what about you? And I can repeat the questions if you want. Yeah, would you mind just repeating them so everyone can come one. including me? <laughs> um, how is your perspective around nature radicalized? Uh, what is your internal driving force for the land and water protection? And how would you reconstruct the framing around land and water protection work, especially where you're from? Yeah, I think so. Answering the first question, um, I think I'll just share a short where my son's across the yard. I, I was just going to share a short story from my work when doing public interest class action work um, involving housing conditions um, in Hawaii. And I um, was working at, at a, to improve public housing conditions at a kind of this high rise tower, um, which had housed a lot of um, immigrants from um, the Marshall Islands and Micronesia. And we were working to fix a lot of the, um, the issues that you have in, in kind of you know, dilapidated public housing. There was an inadequate access for um, people with disabilities. There was you know, falling down walls, all these repairs and all these things that needed to happen. But in that process and in meeting with those tenants um, and those, all these people living in this high rise building, I became very clear that what they really needed was a community garden as well. <laughs> and that connection with nature, they no longer had because they were in this like high rise structure um, all of a sudden and away from home. So through that, and actually the settlement of that lawsuit led to the creation of this massive community garden in the public housing um, complex. And I still hear from um, individual who's involved, who's now a state legislator in, in Hawaii, um, just how amazing that garden is and that space that's created that community and connection. And they, you know, people can grow their traditional foods. Um, they can grow healthy food. They can connect their children to the land. Um, so I guess I just share that because that was a pivotal point for me when I realized um, how that was just part of a settlement agreement, but that was not, you know, anywhere <laughs> in the traditional way that you're trying to achieve something. It was just very in the box of like, let's, let's, you know, fix this, fix that, fix that, but not going to the root and the heart of the issue. And I think that same lack of interconnection and ability to connect and acceptance of you know, as just speaking to degraded environments and on also that potential loss, like that memory loss or not even knowing consciously what the environment was like, because as it degrades, we're, we're losing that, which is why the stories of indigenous elders are so important, right? To, to hold that space for us and share and see that that's what the future can be like again. Um, but we need to change the way that we're living and we need to change these systems we have. Um, 
our laws do now. I mean, I struggle when I see, I mean, people, part of what I do is I, as I see myself as a, as a movement lawyer, um, you know, people come to me with issues and I try to help address them. And I, part of the way now realizing the limitations of the legal system, if I'm trying to use existing laws, which they have a place right now to try to hold things off, you know, as long as you can. But if I'm trying to use existing laws to really restore an ecosystem or to, to stop a harm, it's very hard to do. Um, we have very few tools for that. And so the idea of recognizing that nature has rights, as I mentioned, addresses that issue of nature being able to be heard in court um, and also have the remedies that we need that are remedies for nature to exist and thrive. And those are the same remedies for us to exist and thrive and have this quality of life that, um, that, we, should, that we should have. And forgetting, uh, I think my greatest fear is that we will forget, kind of like Marky was saying, and accept this degraded circumstance as, as if that were okay. Um, and it's not responsible for us as to other humans or to the natural world. Um, so I think, yeah, that's kind of a long answer to how I, <laughs> there are many, and there are many events that have kind of led me to, to really recognize that we need, we need these changes. Um, we all need to work together um, together. And I think that there is so much common ground in this space that if we keep that core integrity, um, we can see that as the theme of this conference is there's intersection among all of these issues, um, which I think might go to another question. So I'll stop, I'll stop with that one. And if there's anything I kind of missed addressing, you could re-ask it. <laughs> It was perfect. Um, I know we briefly touched on this, but how do elements of the existing legal system prevent you from accomplishing your goals? And are the barriers cultural or systemic? And how do you work around them? And we can start with Mark. Oh, man. Um, yeah, it's, it's almost overwhelming. I mean, when you you start getting into the work and um, especially in our experience being an extremely local effort, right? We were amending our local charter. And so it was, it felt very small scale um, when we were petitioning and campaigning and talking to media. And then you start realizing these national and statewide corporate interest groups are funneling money in to stop you. Um, and it's, it's strange because you, you all can, when you get into it at first, thinking of corporate personhood as something kind of abstract sounding, and you start to realize how real it is, how tangible it is, that there are way more avenues accessible and, um, way more pathways for other, for other people to take to prevent you <laughs> from moving forward. And you're just this little group, um, trying to make a, a small impact in your own local community. Um, so I, I do think that they're both. I think it is cultural. It is systemic. Like we we're kind of conditioned to accept that corporate power as part of our system. Um, I don't hear people questioning it as much as they could be. Um, it's just this attitude of, yeah, things need to change. And then looking around and waiting for when that's going to happen. Um, we've also sort of been conditioned to think that like voting is maybe our, our only access into that world. That's our only voice. 
Um, and as we saw, you know, even when we, we passed our law overwhelmingly, um, it came down to a corporate entity suing the city of Toledo. So that's another corporation backed by the state of Ohio. <laughs> so it came to the court, only recognized the arguments of three corporate entities to discuss how far this law was going to go. Um, and, you know, it was almost like voting became this like performative action at that point. And so it, it's hard because I think people accept that, like, well, we tried, we voted, you know, and they don't kind of push back on some of those um, additional challenges that we have. So do you work around them? I think you have to work through them. I think you have to confront them as head on as you can, because you have to understand what's the likelihood if I do this the right way, if I do this the traditional way, how far am I going to get? Um, and for us, it felt like we knew that we weren't going to get very far if we kept doing the same thing that we've done for five decades in trying to push for some sense of cleanup around Lake Erie. Um, so why not do something different and out there that seeks to expose what's going on. Um, and we did this knowing we're probably not gonna get very far and we got a lot farther than we expected. So I, I think you have to, to take that with a sense of, we need to just change things because we, we don't understand until we're confronted how kind of arbitrary some of these rules are and that they're man-made, right? And they, as we're seeing now, they change. Um, even that argument of, well, it's been in place for so long, that's only used against us <laughs> and when we wanna change things. But um, when those power dynamics change higher up, we see those, those laws getting dropped, like they're nothing. And we see those changes happening. So um, and I'll just use another example that sometime after our lawsuit started, we had uh, the budget bill in the state being proposed and the Ohio Chamber of Commerce wrote um, a small provision for the budget bill saying it's now illegal to do rights of nature work and pass rights of nature laws in Ohio, handed that to a representative after the deadline and said, hey, put this in the budget bill for me. It wasn't even in the original text for uh, representatives when they voted on it. And when we questioned it, it said, well, we can't not vote on the budget bill, you know, but we'll accept that this was added last minute. <laughs> so it's, it's very frustrating that we're constantly obedient to these laws because we were told like, that's how you do it. And if you go, if you step outside of that, then you're not doing it the right way. And that power gets abused above us all the time. Thank you so much, Marky. That was such an insightful answer. Um, Ellie, before you answer the question, um, I just want to introduce Karen Coulter. Um, she just arrived. Uh, would you like to introduce yourself and your work? Oh, you're on mute. Sorry. I'm so sorry I'm mute. I'm late because there was a parade that completely boxed in all the streets in the small town and I had to walk part of the way to get internet access. But I'm Karen Coulter. I'm um, director of uh, Blue Mountains Biodiversity, which is an environmental organization that uses legal defense to try to protect forests and national forests. Uh, I've 
mean to protect the forest in the national forest, yeah. And um, I've been part of the Earth First movement. I've been part of the program on corporations, law, and democracy. And um, that gives me more perspective on how radical we need to be and how persistent we need to be. And we need to come up with other tactics and strategies. Amazing, thank you. Mm -hmm. uh, so the question that we were asking that Margie just answered was how do elements of the existing system prevent you from accomplishing your aspirations? Are the barriers cultural or systemic and how do you work around them? And um, Ellie can answer and then Karen. Thank you. Um, great to meet you, Karen. Um, yeah, I think the barriers are in uh, all realms. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I mean, you know, as, it, it's probably a little bit easier to understand in this, you know, in the specific, specific example, you know, context. But, you know, as I said, um, our laws in the United States are, are really drafted um, to the advantage of, of corporations. They're drafted with the mindset of nature is to be extracted. It's a resource to, um, for economic gain. And the mentality is, you know, how much, and this is, you know, mainstream, you know, sort of mentality um, that has led to these laws, this sort of, you know, how much can we get out of this? Um, how can we use this? It's not rooted in a relationship construct and understanding that we have a relationship with nature and we have a responsibility to nature. And so that is, uh, you know, those are all the barriers we're, we're up against is this capitalistic system that profits from the exploitation of nature. And also, I often reflect on why we have such a feels like such a greater uphill battle in the United States to advance rights of nature than in other countries where we see, um, you know, to provide some positive news on that front. Um, we worked with Panama's government to pass a law recognizing the rights of nature just in May of 2022. We saw an opinion coming out of the Ecuador's constitutional court where rights of nature has been enshrined in Ecuador's constitution for a decade, um, helping to protect Los Cedros Forest from mining activities. Um, and I think Karen will probably speak to more. Protecting forests um, in the United States is, we don't have that tool yet. Um, uh, Earth Law Center is also part of the Forest Climate um, Alliance here in the Pacific Northwest. Um, and, uh, you know, we were looking at how we need to change that quickly um and you know there's dramatic changes that need to occur and i think there's multiple strategies and techniques we need to use and work together to do that we can't i think in the theme of uh, marky was saying as well you know we can't accept that the laws are the way they are and that this is okay um or that even laws that exist just because they are they're written down that they're even valid that doesn't make them valid just because they're written down um um, as I think most folks on this call probably know, I mean, that's the origins of civil disobedience and the need for direct action and all of that. Um, so just more people need to realize that. We are seeing a backlash, um, which I don't think, you know, in a sense, it's, it's not a, um, 
a bad thing in the sense that the rights of nature is um, being recognized and acknowledged by corporations and by those who are going to be impacted by its implementation. And they are getting more proactive in trying to pass bans at the state level to prevent rights of nature legislation. Um, but I think ultimately we'll see that you know, there'll be a time where there's this wave and that won't be su successful ultimately and we'll be able to shift all of that. So that, the fact that it's elevated to state and national level conversation in the United States is actually very exciting and encouraging that we're having these conversations. Um, even the, the climate committee, um, the DNC climate committee um, had a proposal regarding rights of nature um, just this past year. So it went from something that was kind of unlaughable, laughable and like unthinkable, um, at least in this, you know, again, speaking in mainstream society constructs, um, to something that is now seriously considered and I'm having conversations with state legislators that want to know more and they're interested. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think we'll see that as part of the shift, you know, I'd pass it now. So is it to me now? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so I see the forest issue as an ex excellent example of how it's both uh, systemic problems um, that are really deeply ingrained in US history, as well as cultural problems that are tied to that, because I see the rule of property, which is the basis of US law, private property, as impeding on any other interest. Um, so the indigenous lands that are now called public lands or national forests are now being uh, decimated. Uh, it's just been an incremental deforestation process. And if we don't uh, maintain those forests standing for carbon sequestration and storage, uh, we're not going to reduce or significantly slow climate change. Because as James Hansen said, um, you can switch over completely to fossil fuels, and if you continue destroying the natural carbon sinks, uh, it's all over. Um, but the Forest Service is completely entrenched with the industry and uh, is in very deep ruts of thinking. And uh, we litigate as much as possible to try to stop and scale down the level of destruction as much as possible, but it's gone to the point where there is no return for, for the ecosystem. In other words, the timber sale rotations in Eastern Oregon are now every 30 years on the same piece of land or less. And that's not enough time for significant regrowth or recovery of the land from the last logging. Um, and likewise, we see um, a parallel inaction of, of politicians on climate change because it's all tied up with economic interests and private property rights of corporations. Uh, the rights of corporations have been elevated over the rights of people and the land. Um, so all of this extraction is now extreme, such as fracking, dredging the last bits of fossil fuel out at, at extreme inefficiencies and the accelerated rate of the logging. And it's also not only an accelerated pace, but it's now on a landscape scale and is deemed restoration or wildfire reduction, but it's not, it's not that. 
It's just systematic liquidation of the forests, and most people don't even realize it's going on. So one of the problems we're facing is we had a, a powerful for, forest defense movement in the 90s, and that basically faded. And now the in, and we're not connected to each other. And so now the individual groups are in an uphill battle to stop as much as possible. But we're never going to stop enough within the legal system, which is why I endorse rights for nature. And even if, as has been said, there will be defeats along the way, just like everything is turning right wing now, like uh, Roe versus Wade just uh, overturned and so forth and so on. Um, but nonetheless, it's sort of like slavery where no one saw an end to slavery, uh, yet it did happen and we need to envision our goal and keep working for it because if we don't have intrinsic rights for nature we have no legal status for nature and that's basically the reality now i see forests that have been so decimated that i don't think they're ever going to come back from the logging and it, ironically it's legally harder to defend a forest that has so many cumulative impacts because there's no endangered species left that kind of thing. So the whole system is stacked against ecological protection. It's stacked against equal rights. So the way I see it is that the prop property rights that were enshrined in the Constitution and enshrined in the U.S. system of law uh, equate a rule of property over e against equal rights and against the rights of nature. Um, so from my perspective, what we need to do uh, along with promoting the rights for nature is to join together as movements, across movements, and find our common cause and try to set aside our differences so that we aren't a circular firing squad taking each other down. Because now the fate of a livable earth itself is at stake. Scientists are predicting that 10 to 50% of the species on earth are going to be extinct by the end of the century. That means complete unraveling of ecosystems. And it also means that famines, droughts, intense storms, fires, sea level rise, and so forth will be so intense that there will not be any possibility of organized human civilization by the end of the century, because there's going to be so many conflicts over basic life sources, such as fresh water, food, and the land base of people fleeing all these problems from extreme climate change. So if we want to um, protect viability of this earth and if we want to avoid those kind of conflicts that will completely un unravel any specter of social justice or equality, uh, we have to be very visionary and we also have to be very united in a platform where we're working towards common ground and we're setting aside differences and my vision for that is that we would have to uh, start drawing for movements across the world, ones that do horizontal organizing and that are autonomous from state and federal governments and are building from the local up and, and creating new models and getting them popularized um, and then using the strength of numbers that way. And my, my idea also is that we have to allow for people in the different movements of such an alliance to use their own tactics, their own knowledge, their own experience, their own local understanding of the land uh, to create solutions. So we're going to have to be broad-minded enough to see that there's going to be differences in tactics and strategies in these movements. Uh, everything from electoral to building community self-reliance, um, 
to all kinds of radical things. Um, so anyway, um, those are some of my ideas. Thank you so much. That was an amazing answer. Um, so it's 1.45. Um, we're going to ask our last question. And then I was wondering if we could open up the chat and put some questions for the Q&A um, to start um, after our answers to this last question. So everyone start thinking of your questions. Um, ending on a positive note, um, what gives you hope for the future? And we'll start with Marky, and then we'll go to Ellie and then Karen. Uh, you know, what? I think events like this give me hope and the fact that I know the leap worth story isn't totally active right now, but I still see people um, engaging with it and taking inspiration from it and saying, I know what the consequences are. I know what the likelihood is, but I still want to pursue this. I still want to be an advocate for the change that I want to see. And so removing that, what's the likelihood of having a success? And um, seeing people say, I'm going to push for what I think is right and the world I want to see, the world I want to pass on and go for it, even though I know I've got all these things stacked against me. So I think that's what gives me the most hope. Thanks. Yeah, I am. Um, you know, I also think and Karen, I really appreciate your last thoughts there. Um, I, I think we, we have to hold that visionary space for what the world can look like. And, and what gives me hope is the fact that just in the time that I've been involved in the rights of nature movement, we have seen an exponential number of rights of nature laws around the world. And we are now at the stage that's incredibly exciting because we're seeing the implementation of those laws and the enforcement of them making it an, a difference. And I know that that is possible in this country as well. Um, and you know, Karen hit on a lot of the struggles we have with the strong private property rights, but those, all of those things, if there's any, um, I guess, <laughs> silver lining and some of what we've seen from the Supreme Court lately, it is that things can change, I guess. You take those principles and you realize, one, we need a new constitution. We need new constitutional provisions. We need new protections and we need new laws. Um, they need to be clearly drafted. Um, and it is, it is time for that. Um, we need new ways and in for interpreting the constitution, the doctrines of the court are, is using are antiquated and make no sense and are frankly quite disrespectful, I think, to indigenous peoples and first peoples. Um, and so what gives me hope is that we're all here having this conversation and that there are many conversations like this happening around the country and around the world. And there are, there are many organizations doing this work and, and we get more inquiries about rights of nature laws and how, how to put them in place. Um, then, then we can even handle. And I think there's so much space for this work and there's so many people that are doing it. And so I think that we are gonna see this change. And if it comes out of necessity because we are at this tipping point as kind of Marky was speaking to, then that might be how it comes. But 
because we're basically at that point. Um, <laughs> but I think it's going to have to shift. Um, so that gives me some hope. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, I work with young people all the time, and I have to stay somewhat upbeat and open-minded to do that. And I don't lie to them about the state of climate change. I think that's a false narrative and it's not helpful. And I've seen climate change activists do that. Uh, but the young people um, are largely discredited by older people because you aren't, because we aren't, uh, I can't say we, me actually, because I am spending significant time with younger people, but a lot of older people don't spend significant time with younger people. And I'm amazed by the insights, um, the acuity of thought, the visions, the dreams, the persistence, uh, despite all odds, uh, by younger people. And we have to support that. Um, and then, and all the trauma that has come from this rat race society of consumption and poverty and inequality and uh, just a constant struggle. Um, and so that's part of it. Another part is that when I go into nature, which I do a lot, I spend about four months of the year um, constantly in the forest. Um, I had to come out of the forest for this, which is one reason I was late. But at any rate, um, Last summer, or last spring rather, I came back to my land from Portland, Oregon, the city, and in on March 31st, and I was absolutely devastated because it was the drought, it was the heat, record-breaking heat wave, the ground was barren, it should have been snowy and muddy and wet, and um, as the spring progressed, there were hardly any plants. There were no birds singing. I just started crying. I've never experienced the land where I live, which is Umatilla land, Confederate land, uh, that way. And then this spring, um, it was very rainy, par partly because maybe the carbon dioxide has gotten to over something like, uh, you know, 400 and f whatever it is, parts per million. I'm not good at figures but it just reached a new high and that could trigger more rain and wetness in some places, but I'm not deluded to think that climate change is over. However, um, I've learned that for my own personal sanity to continue as an activist, I have to lower the bar on my expectations. In other words, I'm extremely happy this spring because it's wet, it's green, it's lush, the plants are seeding profusely, there's flowers everywhere, the birds, I've never seen some of these birds before on the land where I live. Uh, and I have to rejoice at that because that means there's still wild nature to save. So that's part of it for me too. Another um, thing is I'm happy because there's increased rights-based organizing across social justice as well as ecological movements instead of just harms-based organizing. If we deal with one harm at a time, we're not gonna get anywhere. If we stay within ruts of what we're told to do, we're not gonna get anywhere. And I see people starting to break out of that. And then another thing that helps me is reading some speculative near fiction. Uh, a couple examples where it sets this a realistic scenario of where we're going to be. We're locked into climate change at this point, where we're going to be soon and how people are, would be, what they would be debating, what their issues would be, what the trauma would be, how they're going to deal with it. How are we going to work around violence and various other things. And the two books for that I would recommend are The Ministry of the Future by Kim Stanley Robinson 
and uh, Cory Doctorow's Walk Away, even though that has an unrealistic premise in it, which I'll let you find. Uh, but at any rate, I'm finding some new ideas about what would that look like and what would we have to do and how are we going to prepare people for this future and how are we going to adapt, but also how are we going to end this political stalemate on climate change. Um, so I think that we need a new bioethic. We need a part, a huge part of my problems in Eastern Oregon are the, the worldview of the majority of the people out here, and this is true of a lot of the world, is anthropocentric. It's a, a more of a religious worldview where humans dominate the earth. And, if you, and that's hard to break through. And so you have to find commonality with people you usually don't deal with. I talk to rural ranchers and loggers and, and I find that there's a spectrum from progressive to knee-jerk reactionary in any group you pick, forest service, everybody. Um, so we have to try to tap into some cognitive dissonance there um, and um, just come up with a new central societal ethic that is centered around saving the earth and protecting the earth and maintaining the earth and lowering consumption massively, especially in the US. Um, and also the other thing that gives me a little bit of hope is it's really only about 20 countries and about 70 corporations that are causing most of the climate change. So let's do some campaigns that target that, the range in tactics and strategies, but let's start being really focused about what we need to change. Amazing, thank you so much. Um, we have a couple questions in the chat. The first one is from Greg Coleridge. How can we best use rights of nature defeats to educate and organize to create new movements for social change? We can start with Marky. Well, I think a lot of that is down to what comes out of those defeats and, and understanding whose voice was heard the most, who was making the decisions. Um, you know, when you look at the Libor story from a space of defeat. I mean, it was uh, industrial representation and, and, and corporate representation that was really pushing for this, right? Um, if you look at the verdict, the final verdict, the argument made by the corporate entity that sued the city of Toledo sued on the grounds that their civil rights were being violated, their civil rights as a corporation. Um, and the verdict came back saying that we caused harm to the state of Ohio, which was the point. It, it cited causing harm to the state's ability to permit and um, issue those permits and, and, and uh, regulate the, the industry. And that was, that was what we wanted to cause harm to. So it was very validating to see that in writing that, yeah, that's where, that's where this effort has its teeth. Um, but obviously, we're creating a legal tool that we don't just want to be there as like, we're going to sue everybody, but rather a way to change behavior, to change the way we think, to sort of ta tailor um, what kind of industry activity that we see. Are they adhering to this law or are they blatantly ignoring it? And, you know, if you look further in the verdict, it also says that LIBOR has no enforcement ability, that it's a meaningless value statement. Um, so we cause harm, but we also are just a value statement that 
couldn't have possibly gone anywhere. So there's a lot of contradictions. And just breaking down those arguments, I think show people really how performative some of that process becomes. So I think that's probably the best sort of education piece um, is getting into those legal arguments and not saying, well, the court ruled X, Y, and Z, but why did they say X, Y, and Z? What precedents are they pulling from? What arguments are they making? What statements are they standing by? And that's where you see the breakdown. Thank you. Um, Ellie, what about you? Um, yeah, I think that's a great question. I guess just starting where, where Mark, you maybe left off is that, um, yeah, in terms of the court arena and some of the decisions that have come out of this, I mean, I have um, a mixed relationship with the courts. I mean, they can be useful, judges are humans. Um, <laughs> there isn't really this, obviously this kind of this fiction of this unbiased judicial branch. Um, and yeah, I've had my own personal experience with that in the, in the context of, you know, doing some of, some of these laws. Um, and, and I think those examples illustrate um, how much change needs to occur and, and, those decisions should not be tolerated. And in my case, I was sanctioned for essentially for arguing that a corporation in defense of a law um, passed by a township in Pennsylvania, arguing that a corporation was a state actor um, because, and, you know, because a lot of corporations are state actors and that's kind of a, a legal doctrine in order to hold a corporation liable for violation of constitutional rights, you have to past that hurdle and arguing that corporations, because they receive X amount of money and support and permits and are chartered by the state are essentially acting as corporate actors and should be held liable for violating constitutional rights and community rights. Um, the judge just found that wholly unacceptable, which to many people, that seems like completely logical. Um, and I think to many other judges that would have as well. Um, I'm not speaking to some of the, the state laws. I think there's four, there's three state bans on rights of nature. And ban, I mean, they're all a bit different. So um, but the most recent one was in Idaho. It's simply just saying that um, environmental elements, et cetera, could not have legal personhood, not have standing in the civil code. So couldn't appeal, appear in court. I think that I'm not entirely sure the, if there was a complete backlash for that, but it was, I might've been related to the Nez Pierce tribe passing a resolution recognizing the rights of the Snake River um, and concerns about what that could possibly mean. And I think these are tremendous opportunities for the narrative to shift and to share um, why it is so important that we do give a voice to nature and what that means for humans and nature and this interconnection, the interconnection of those rights is I mentioned, which in Chile's proposed constitution reflects that. Um, if you look in the, the news, you know, some of the counter narratives in Idaho were uh, in support of the ban, were saying, you know, uh, nature will have more rights than your child and, you know, all these fictions. And so I think that's a common thing among all the work that we're doing here and the, the intersection of it at the, at the root of that too, is just false information, false statements. And that's a huge thing to combat. And I, we struggle with that every day because industry associations have so much money, power and influence, you know, but as Karen pointed out, there are more people and individuals <laughs> that than there are corporate actors controlling all of this. And so if we can free ourselves and free as many people as we can from those 
confines of those constructs that are false, then I think we have a chance um, to do that. And I think, you know, publicity, it's publicity about the movement, you know, it's very simplest terms. Um, the news about the bands is publicity. Of, of publicity, it's letting people aware of it. So then we can then what it actually means, um, which is the work that we're doing and working on. Yeah, um, I think I got the question. I'm not good at putting things in the chat, so I'll just reiterate titles. But uh, basically, I think to work with other movements about why it's so important to focus on climate change in particular and uh, environmental issues in general, because there's other many other environmental issues that are pushing the earth to the brink of extinction. There's the sixth mass extinction of species, which is not just from climate change. Um, it's also from toxic pollution and uh, invasive species and habitat destruction and things like that. And we simply aren't going to survive a major uh, species extinction. Humans aren't. Uh, so I think we have to uh, get across to people that there will be no social justice on a dead or dying planet because of all the conflicts that will ensue from climate change where there will be violent conflicts over resources. But we also have to say, because it's true, that these issues are all linked. In other words, we're fighting for equality of other species, um, protection of the rights of say rivers, forests, ecosystems, ecological processes. This We only have this one livable planet. Um, and the two things go together. In other words, it's inequality and power over by corporate power and property rights that make us so ineffective, you know? So we have to get across that if we create a broader ethic that everyone can agree with of social justice and ecological justice, um, then we have a chance of moving beyond these boundaries. And one thing to remember about that is that um, it only takes about three to 4% of a population to be converted, uh, so to speak, to actually have a mass movement that becomes overwhelming. And people forget that. We don't have to convert everybody. There's this allied spectrum uh, where 20% are extremely against you. You're not gonna try to convert that 20%, that's hopeless. You're going to try to move people who are on the fence to be supportive and supporters to be more supportive and so forth and so on. Uh, the other thing is the book that Elizabeth Chenoweth and another woman who I can't remember the name of at the moment uh, wrote about nonviolent campaigns showed that statistically um, nonviolent campaigns that are mostly nonviolent, they don't even have to be completely nonviolent, um, are the ones that tend to have the most lasting systemic change. So that's something to think about and to practice. Uh, further, um, I think building a movement uh, can be done by everyone. And if you repeat something often enough, the way Trump did, uh, such as rights for nature in casual conversation with people who aren't used to these concepts, it will gain traction, just like the Earth First movement made old growth a household word. Now we need to make biodiversity a household word and rights for nature a household word. But that's how a groundswell movement develops that changes the nature of society. And that's what we need to do. We basically fundamentally have to change the operation of societal norms, create a bioethic uh, so that the planet comes first 
And to do that, we have to have equality of people as well and to get rid of social injustices. So they, they work hand in hand. If you look at the history, the exploitation of the land and indigenous people's lands and commodification of nature went hand in hand with slavery, indentured servants, uh, all kinds of exploitation of people. So we, we can combine those two ideas and make a powerful movement. Thank you so much. We have a question from Inabel. Is there a radical hub nationally or internationally for rights of nature and where can folks get involved or can begin to get involved? We can start with Marky and work our way in the circle. Yeah, I think Elizabeth um, actually put a couple resources in the chat. Um, obviously, you know, Earth Law Center, um, Global Alliance for Rights of Nature, those are great places to start if you're looking for support, if you're looking for um, a little guidance. Um, but, you know, I think too, the bigger an organization gets, sometimes they have to be a little more careful with the way that they word things and support things. So the fun part about being involved in the, the local grassroots group is not having as much of those barriers. So um, you have that control of your narrative and you know your local community well enough that you know the story that you wanna tell. Um, so those are great, great resources, great hubs. Um, but don't forget kind of the power that your local group carries um, and the impact you can have by not having so many restrictions and, and being kind of filtered with what you get to say. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I posted a couple of, um, just posting one more in the chat. Um, Global Alliance Rights of Nature, um, the Earth Law Center, we have some material and references on our website. Um, and there's a whole spectrum of, of work you can do. As Karen mentioned, just talking about the concept and familiarizing people with it, which like I said, to me has been exciting to see that is becoming a much more familiar concept. People don't look at me like I'm crazy. They wanna know more now. And so those conversations are happening. And I, I sometimes forget to see that as a success because it is a form of success of, this, of these concepts. Um, and then an example of um, a, a group we're working with, a local group, uh, Save the Colorado, has a rights of nature component to the work they do. And so we've been working with them on a campaign on rights of rivers and watersheds um, that is rooted in that local level action um, because that is a, is a very effective place to be having these conversations um, in the US at this point um, at the local level. There's a lot that can be done and giving voice to ecosystems, setting up guardianship structures, um, uh, and passing resolutions even, you know, even though they're not binding, it expresses that, it educates your, your lawmakers, it educates your community, you know, holding conversations, there's some, some good films to watch as well. Um, so I'll kind of stop there with that. Um, but, you know, feel, I put my email in the chat as well, so feel free to reach out to me. Yeah, and, um... I suggest all of that, but also I'm, I'm very isolated. So somebody who's pretty isolated in a rural right-wing community might feel a bit frustrated on how do I do something about it? And it can be pretty simple of just starting conversations. Um, I have a bumper sticker on the front of my truck that says equal rights for all species. And finally, somebody decided to have a conversation about it because that was what it was supposed to be is a conversation. And they said, well, do you mean you can't kill any animals? And I said, no, because animals can kill us as well. Uh, I mean, 
that all species have a right to flourish and to have their own existence in their, in their own right. And then the person looked at me and said, oh, rights for nature? And I'm going, oh, this is great. <laughs> so, so it can spread uh, if you do it. I'm, I'm writing a book uh, that was started during my time with the program on corporations law. Well, I wrote a book uh, during my time with the program on corporations law and democracy, which is called um, Equal Rights Versus Property Rights. And it's centering about the history that brought us here. And uh, so far, I haven't gotten it published, but if anybody has an into a university press, that might be more likely to publish it. So let me know. Uh, and if, if all else fails, I'm just going to get it printed and pass it out as much as possible. So people can do things on their own level wherever they are. And then when I'm doing public presentations, of course, I can do more. And um, hopefully that's opening up more, not just Zoom. Um, but on the titles I gave out, uh, it was uh, Walk Away by Cory Doctorow. It was uh, Ministry of the Future by Kim Stanley Robinson. I've kind of forgotten the exact name of the one about nonviolence conflict, but it was with two authors, with Elizabeth Chenoweth, and it's the big book, not the simple pamphlet uh, that's really compelling. And then if you wanted to relate people who are involved with other issues to some ecological issues and near future scenarios, a couple other books I would, rep I would recommend are Goliath. And unfortunately, I can't remember that author's name. I'm getting old with my memory, but it's uh, about race inequality and uh, gentrification with white people going off to colonize the moon and black people being left on the earth to deal with high radioactive levels and toxicity and so forth. And it's very interesting. I, I found it hard to follow in the end, but it's really worth reading. And then another one called Waste Tide. And unfortunately, I can't remember the name of the author there, but it's a Chinese author, I think. Um, and that one is about the fate of people digging through plastic trash, uh, notably computer trash, from the U.S. and other countries and having gross uh, health illnesses and so forth, but it takes it to a new level of near future where they're dealing with um, all kinds of like bio limbs, uh, artificial limbs and things like that. And that's also extremely interesting. And in both cases, it's the story of rebellion against these things uh, by, by the people on earth and by the waste pickers themselves. So I recommend those books as well. I'm sorry, I can't remember more of the authors. I'm sure I'm going to start reading some of those books. They sound amazing. Um, we have our last question. Um, we're running out of time. We have eight minutes left. Karen, I think you actually already addressed this question, um, but it's from Andrea Geralds in the chat. Um, how can groups working in other areas, say civil rights, human rights, work better, more collaboratively with the rights of nature movement? We can start with Marky. Yeah, I think, you know, I feel compelled to kind of flip that question around to ask how can the rights of nature movement work better and work collaboratively with other uh, movements? Because I think we get swept up sometimes. Um, we're dealing with a personal crisis usually that we're experiencing and we're experiencing it as a community. And we have these very universal things that affect all people. Um, and sometimes we kind of have this expectation that like, no, no, like you got to solve this first, or you need to, you need to come to our side. And we don't always hear when people are saying, 
we don't feel like we are um, well represented or or part of that solution. And maybe there's an issue of access to resources that we're not considering because we do tend to take this broader, this broader space. So um, I think that needs to be more in the forefront of rights of nature work moving forward, right? If we're going to be this concerned, engaged public and expect to participate in a movement building space, we have to be willing to evolve and learn and grow with that basic understanding that any compromise towards the safety and sense of belonging to others is unacceptable. And sometimes we get lost in that because we have this really immediate concern and we may not know what it's like for someone else who feels harm in a different way that's situational or day-to-day -day or spontaneous. Um, we're seeing it as sort of this slow boil and we're, we're witnessing this, this change and this trend, but um, we walk out our door safely, right? We get in our car without fear. And so I don't think we're, we're totally at that mindset yet. And I think we could do better. Thank you. Um, Ellie, do you have anything to add? Um, yeah, so obviously I can't speak whole for the rights of nature movement. It's, it's interesting with the Earth Law Center that we have, we work in not just Latin America, but in Africa and other places around the world. So I sort of have, it's been an amazing collaboration with them because I've developed this more global perspective on what's happening in rights of nature and helped me examine my own limitations and my understanding being born and raised in this place. Um, so I would say that, um, you know, at the root of that, there really isn't a separation between those. Like, and you know, they're, they're all really one and the same, like the interconnection between all of them. Like we separate them in the legal system conceptually, but as a, a practical level, they're all interconnected. Like kind of the example I started with in my experience in public housing. And, you know, that's a right to housing, a right to safe housing. Um, and the connection with nature and the ecosystem stewardship piece, like that was all interconnected for the health being of those residents. And the garden arguably had a bigger impact than, you know, having their whatever was broken fixed, you know, in a certain amount of time. And so I guess just looking at those, everything is actually interconnected. We tend, we have this tendency, um, and I think it is a bit of a construct of our, of the way our Western legal system is designed, which like ultimately we envision redesigning the entire legal system, but currently are, we are working within the right space concept as if these things were all like separate things. Um, and they're not, I mean, even like the Inter-American Court of Human Rights recognize the rights of nature in the context of recognizing um, human rights to a clean and healthy environment. And so, um, you know, and then on a practical level, I would say that um, uh, I see more more organizations just wanting to learn about rights of nature. So I feel like it's kind of as we talk about it and we are open to collaborating, we're, we're open to collaborating with anyone um, who shares them integrity and values. Um, and so I think that, you know, we're seeing more people move into this space and want to learn about it. I mean, I think because I'm my background is litigation, mainstream law firms are interested and, in, you know, environmental organizations, kind of the mainstream ones are interested in this concept and what it can mean. And I, I think not putting people on the defensive, recognizing that the work that they're doing is valuable in the, in the space. If you're practicing the same traditional environmental regulatory law under the Endangered Species Act, understanding that saying that we need new tools is not, is not to, to, 
devalue the work you're doing under the Endangered Species Act because you're maybe an expert in using that to hold off the destruction the best we possibly can, even though that's an inadequate tool and it's not a criticism, it's just the sense. So I think that initially there can be like this sense of, um, it's not about competition, it's about collaboration. So I'll just end with that. <laughs> okay. Yeah, the, at the, with the possibility of repeating some of what's been said, I think that uh, white people or privileged people in any given situation need to defer more to other people who are less privileged and watch that you don't dominate the conversation and watch that you don't force your agenda on someone. Well, at one point during the World Trade Organization protest, uh, I was listening to a African-American reverend and somebody in the mostly white crowd in Seattle uh, raised their hand and said, uh, how do we get uh, people of color involved in our activism? And he said, invite us to the very first meeting before you've decided what your agenda is or maybe even what your issue is. In other words, you have to respect the status of people in other movements. You can't just abandon their status. You need to learn about them, figure out where they are in their community and respond accordingly with respect. And the way to respect someone is to invite them early on to join you in something that hasn't been fully developed already. Um, and I've seen this uh, play out a lot with indigenous people in Eastern Oregon where uh, a few indigenous people are invited as token Indians or whatever um, for a big meeting of mostly white people, environmentalists. And in one case, there were two indigenous guys who were invited to this meeting and they were just kind of kicking the dirt behind their vehicle. And they said, um, what do you want from us? And we'd rather go fishing. So we need to avoid that kind of alienation where people are just tokenized. And um, then we also need to meet people where they are. Uh, I'm dealing with a very extreme right rural population and um, nonetheless, it is a spectrum if you talk to people long enough. For instance, people are much more receptive to the idea of deposing corporate power than they are to me saying we need to stop the timber sale program on national forests. Well, to me, that's good. I mean, we're getting to the heart of the matter instead of a symptom, right? So you may find that in other very right-wing areas that if you talk to people enough, you find that they agree with you that there's too much corporate power and there's too much, there's not, a left, not enough rights for people and they're not being represented fairly and things like that. And then I'm also noticing uh, increasing trauma among uh, young people that I work with. And I think we have to be very careful to make space uh, where you listen more than you speak and you listen closely and you respond to what they're saying. Uh, and one way to do that um, proactively is to have an, you should all have anti-oppression policies and also codes of behavior for a meeting as well as good facilitation so that people are given room to speak and to weigh in who ordinarily might not speak up. Um, and also if there is emotional trauma, you need to stop and deal with it. I really liked the Quakers uh, when I worked with the American Friends Service Committee because when we were in a meeting and someone said something extremely disturbing, we'd all have a moment of silence and not just gloss over it. So there's practical ways to intersect with other movements that are more respectful and will get more 
uh, minds and experience to the table and in a good way, as opposed to um, a way that is not respecting them and is, and is basically dominating them. Um, and then relating, relating rights for nature in particular to people's lived experience. Most people, many people of all different colors and backgrounds and pri privilege levels have some kind of experience with nature. One of our volunteers who just came out who's um, mixed race, Hispanic and white, uh, said, yeah, I grew up, we were asking each other about our experiences with nature and how we connected with nature. And she said, I grew up in Chicago, but fortunately right outside my house, there was this ditch uh, with water running through it, a stream. And that's where I got my connection. So we need to find where people have their connections and build on that um, and work with that uh, wherever they are. So I think that's most of what I had to say. Well, we're at time. I just want to say thank you so much to all our amazing panelists. Um, they've put their contact information for the most part in uh, the chat so you can reach out to them. Um, I'll hand back the power to the moderators and the facilitators, but I had a lovely afternoon with you guys and I can't wait to collaborate with you further. Thank you, everyone. <laughs>